At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare what's up this your boy little duval and check out my podcast conversations with unk on the black effect podcast network each and every tuesday conversations with unk podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness unlike my work on stage i tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement yet remind folks to never forget to laugh every tuesday listen to conversation with unk hosted by Lil duval on the black effect podcast network iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Uh. Check it out now. Uh. No doubt now. Uh. It's the Beating the Book podcast. Gil Alexander. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe during this global pandemic. Got some more pods for you for your enjoyment. During this strange time, uh, I'm not doing a numbers game at VEASAN this week, but decided I want to put out a pod here and add an exclusive podcast segment at the very end. This is all about The Last Dance, ESPN's 30 for 30 10-part docuseries on the final year of Michael Jordan's sixth championship run in the 90s. Um, Such a great docuseries in so many ways, but I've tried to sort of say things that others aren't necessarily uh, during the course of events here after parts one and two, after parts three and four, and now after parts five and six, talking about reaction from both myself and Michael Wilbon. You know him best from PTI over at ESPN. Uh, Adam Stanko from the Rejecting the Screen podcast, who joins me a couple of times on this podcast, and wanted to talk about some of the half-truths in there, some of the misleading points in the docuseries, some of the omissions and then get into some of the betting lines of the biggest games of that stretch. About as comprehensive a look at the last dance as you will get. Oh, and the LeBradford Smith story as well uh, towards the end, a Scotty Pippen story uh, that you won't hear anywhere else except right here on the Beating the Book podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. Back on a numbers game, just like the man said, Gil Alexander, live from San Francisco, Sirius XM Channel 204. Danny, did you get to uh, did you get to watch the first two installments of the ten part docu series, The Last Dance? Oh yeah, on ESPN last night. Wouldn't miss it. What did you, now? Now, how old are you, Danny? Because you you were not around at least in a conscious way for most of the Jordan years, right? Yeah, so I was born in 1996 on 23. But, oh, uh, so grew yeah. up in Chicago, though, so it was ingrained in me. So uh, ever since uh, I was born. 
listen, he's the greatest player who's ever lived. I will not be drawn into these ridiculous sports radio debates between him and LeBron because LeBron is great. But if you ever put those two together on the same court in a game or series of consequence, you will never get me to believe that Michael Jordan wouldn't uh, just mentally win that battle. Right. Because uh, there was no better competitor and there was nobody who could get into uh, an opponent's head uh, better than uh, Michael Jordan could. Uh, uh, but I find it, th- this thing so fascinating and we'll go through the break on this, but I, you know, the, the first thing that, that leaps to mind from that are the things that I either didn't remember or more likely in this case may not have even known. Cause you know, I was, I was a kid in junior high when Jordan was in college. Um, and you know, in high school, I think when he, when he went to the pros and, and it's, there's certain things that you, you remember, but you don't remember all the details of one of which was, uh, this notion that in the second year, in his second year, when he came back from injury, that he was held to a 14 minute time limit in games down the stretch. It was sort of the bull's way of quote unquote protecting him, but really maybe doing the old tankaroo back then, uh, as well. And Jordan was having none of it, uh, that prior to his explosion in the playoffs against the Celtics, uh, where he scored 49 and 63 in consecutive games, even though the Celtics, both of those as the bulls entered the, uh, the playoffs in 85, 86 as an eight seed after having won just 30 games. I don't remember that 14 minute limit. That was uh, surprising to me. And I also don't remember in their, you know, 97, 98 season, which is ostensibly what the last dance is about. I don't quite remember the Pippin drama uh, as big as it was. Like, I remember he was out with an injury, but this was way worse than I ever thought it was or ever knew that it was. So those two things were shocking to me. I want to get back in after the break, though. I want to get back to the thing that I think was the biggest omission from parts one and two, something that I remember that at least 15 seconds should have been devoted to uh, because it could have changed everything. Get to that coming back on a numbers game at VEASAN, the sports betting network. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Back on a numbers game brought to you by the bet MGM app. Gil Alexander in San Francisco, Danny Burke in Las Vegas, uh, parts one and two of the last dance 30 for 30 ESPN's docuseries, uh, began last night, pushed up from when it was supposed to air originally, but during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, all the parties involved were like, yeah, let's, let's push this up. We could probably, uh, do better. And by the way, they're not completely done with production on parts nine and 10, uh, but they'll get there by the time we're there. Um, so let's flash up this tweet. This is by the way, not the part that I was referring to when I think when I, when I was saying that something I thought was a glaring omission last night, but this is from David Purdom, uh, which he put out on, I believe it was Friday about just, you know, how amazing for those who weren't around at the time and weren't, you know, present for the amazement that was the two time three peating Chicago bulls of the nineties. Um, from a betting standpoint, the greatest thing about them as David Purdom tweets here is they're amazing streak of being favored in professional basketball games. Um, and Purdom points out our buddy, David Purdom, uh, longest streaks of consecutive games being favored. The Rams held that record. The uh, greatest show on turf Rams of the uh, turn of the century, 57 straight games, which they were favored Bama 
in college football, 72 straight games between 2010 and 2015. Uh, the Astros, the cheating Astros, can I call them that? Uh, allegedly, 2019, 84 straight games. I know it was 2017. Don't tweet me. Uh, but then there's the Bulls from 95 to 97, 185 straight games uh, in which they were favored. Much of that, of course, the 96 97 version of the Bulls, which won 72 games uh, at the time, 72 and 10, the greatest regular season of all time. They went on to win their fifth title that year. Keep in mind, of course, the Warriors broke that with the 73 and 9 season, uh, middle of uh, the last decade, but that was the year the Warriors lost to the Cavaliers. Um, when they went scoreless, it should be pointed out, the last four minutes and 39 seconds of game seven the 73 win warriors. Anyway, 185 straight games being favored by those uh, 95 to 97 bulls. So, so not having, you know, been sort of, you know, you were an infant when they were winning their fifth and sixth championships. Then Danny, did those two parts drive home for you more than you ever kind of could figure just how huge they were? I mean, just growing up in Chicago myself, I knew that I had to you know, it study as much on Jordan as I needed to. And it wasn't even because it was a necessity. Obviously I wanted to, I mean, I love watching the guy and old highlights and whatnot, but the thing that stood out to me that I didn't really know as much until watching this documentary Gil is just the upper management, how things were so transparent back then. I mean, Jerry Krause openly saying that it was going to be Phil's last season. I mean, I know that's pretty evident, but more so the whole Scotty Pippen debacle was very interesting to me. Basically, how that was just such a mess and he's openly saying that he's going to get traded here and he's just incredibly underpaid now i know it's relative back then to what it is now but still people put it up to a scale it's just ridiculous to see that gil i mean how underappreciated and undervalued he was at the time and i think jordan says it best when if you mention my name you also have to mention scotty pippen i think that's the most oh yeah you know, the most prominent thing that jordan does and, and to recognize is that he's not taking all the credit in at any point just himself. He's always giving credit to his team and especially to Scottie Pippen. So that's always fascinating to see. And you have to appreciate as being a fan. Yeah, no. I, and I thought Jordan came off well with that. Listen, uh, Danny, I had Scottie Pippen shoes. I didn't have Michael. Jo I didn't have Air Jordans. I still have my Pippen somewhere. Loved those shoes. I mean, that Scottie Pippen was one of the top 50 players of all time all right. in the National Basketball Association. And it should be pointed out that between the two three-peats, when Jordan went off and played uh, played baseball, which we'll get to, I'm sure, as the docuseries continues, Scottie Pippen was undoubtedly one of the best handful of players in the NBA. Arguably could Jordan's have been MVP absence. that season. Arguably could have been MVP in the 94-95 season. Absolutely. So um, there's that. But But getting back to it, cause I, I want to crescendo up to, to what I think was the big omission. The things that surprised me again, or the things that I, that I didn't know the 14 minute limit for Jordan in his second season down the stretch after the injury and how he rebelled against that whole tank, a tank of Palooza, uh, notion from the bulls under the guise of protecting Jordan. Uh, I didn't know about the, the extent to the Pippen drama, the final year, right? That contract, by the way, is horrific. And I know that like Scottie Pippen said he had to, you know, you know, he wanted to make sure his family was secure and I get that, but okay. There's like a happy medium in there somewhere. Like right. that was a seven year deal for 18 million. Just by contrast, to give you an idea, Danny, Jawan Howard of the bullets signed a deal in 95. And I do mean bullets, not wizards 
for 17 million a year at that point. Jeez. So think about just how underpaid a guy like Scottie Pippen was. Uh, the other thing that, that surprised me, when Scottie Pippen was drafted, even those of us who were basketball fans and were huge basketball fans, we had never heard of Scottie Pippen, which the docuseries points out most people hadn't. I didn't realize that he went to Central Arkansas as a manager, a team manager at the beginning. Like that little detail I didn't know either. So I think that the docuseries did very well in, in really as much as you thought you know about the Bulls. There were just these few details where you're like, wow, I, did, I didn't realize that. Um, I do think the college stories about Jordan, particularly the one about him writing home to his mom, asking her to send stamps was super relatable. And I thought that was a feel good moment of the first two parts. Cause I think everybody can relate to that as, as former college students. Uh, so it, giving, you know, shedding light on the fact that at one time, Mike Jordan was actually a mere mortal like all of us. Uh, but then the thing that I thought was the glaring omission and you won't get this probably anywhere else, but as a guy that grew up as a Washington bullets fan, when Jordan came into the league, it was 1984. It was after his great three years at North Carolina, after he won Olympic gold. His very first game in the National Basketball Association, first regular season game, the Bulls are at home against the Washington Bullets. In the first half of the first game, Jordan goes up for his first slam dunk in his entire NBA career. And Ricky Mahorn, Bruce Brothers of the Washington Bullets, goes underneath him and Jordan crashes to the ground on his back and is on the ground for 30 seconds. His entire NBA career could have been over in the first half. And I'm not exaggerating that. Somebody's got to find that. I don't know if there's a YouTube clip, but that should have been given 10 to 15 seconds because that really could have been a game changer. Instead, they uh, skipped forward to game three. Anyway, one omission and what I thought was a great first two parts. Look forward to it moving forward. Um, but that was, that was unbelievable. Ricky Mahorn and the bullets who were a middling team back in the eighties, who always won about 40 games snuck into the playoffs could have been over all over before, uh, Jordan had a chance to win one championship, let alone six. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Back on a numbers game, Gil Alexander live in San Francisco. Um, so Danny, uh, I hate being this guy. I know. I, I'm afraid you're going to ruin it for us here, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> let me just, let me just preface it by saying I loved the first two parts of the last dance, the, the, uh, documentary, the docu series that will have 10 parts in total on ESPN. Great 30 for 30. Um, despite the fact that yesterday I pointed out, Oh, I thought, you know, there was a little omission. They could have thrown in the fact that in MJ's first game with the bulls, his career might've been ended right there. So I thought that was worth 10, 15 seconds. But that was just a little thing, you know, cause I'm a Washington bullets fan growing up. No one was into the NBA or college hoops more than uh, I was. I was a kid who grew up in the DC area. We're right in the middle of uh, ACC country. I mean, we breathed college basketball and loved Jordan. So, you know, but here's, but here's the deal, Danny. And let me also just preface it by saying, and you get this, you do shows. Um, we all make errors all the time, right? Like there's not a show that goes by Danny where I don't make some dumb error, right? I'll say something that I, my brain, you know, I'll, I'll be thinking one thing and then it'll come out of my mouth differently, but we're on live 10 hours uh, a week or I am anyway on this show. So, so errors happen. I'm not talking about flipping errors. I'm just talking about, you have this documentary that by the way, 6.1 million people watched 
uh, on Sunday night. 6.3, I think, for the first hour, 5.9 million the second hour. So by any, by any measure, was a fabulous success for ESPN. But if you're doing a documentary, you actually have the time to vet what it is that you're doing. And I even talked about yesterday how there were some things that surprised me. And I talked about, oh, I didn't realize the Scottie Pippen drama was quite that big uh, heading into the 97 and into the 97-98 season. I didn't realize that he was a, a manager when he, when he first got onto the Central Arkansas uh, campus and team. But the big thing that I didn't recall, if you remember what I said yesterday on the show, was I didn't remember this fact that much of, I believe, the second part, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, was it the second hour where they talked about uh, Jordan's second year in the NBA, the 85-86 season, um, that he was on this 14-minute limit uh, down the stretch of the season. The Bulls, uh, Jerry Krause basically saying, yeah, we want to protect you from your injury. Jordan had broken his foot early in the second year of his NBA career. And he missed, I think, 64 games in total. Uh, but when he came back late in the season, you know, the whole point of much of the documentary the other night was, yeah, he was on this 14 minute uh, limit um, restriction and Jordan was super frustrated by it and on and on and on and on. Well, just because the kind of guy I am, I decided to do a little research on that because I'm like, I don't remember that at all. So I went to basketball reference, Danny, and if you could flash up my tweet that I just tweeted out mere moments ago, these are MJ's minutes in all of the games. The minutes are on the far left. These are all of MJ's minutes logged in the final, what is that, uh, 16, 15 games of the season? The final 15 games of the season, mm -hmm. 13, 14, okay, those were the first two games back. But then 15, 16, 16, 19, 22, 23, 26, 28, 31, 31, 33, 37, 29. So what are we talking about? And again, we all make mistakes, but like that was a huge part of the first couple hours of the docuseries. And so in retrospect, now when I look at that, I'm like, oh, that sucks. That's kind of disappointing. I don't know what your reaction is to that, but I don't believe in alternative facts. And I thought that that was something that if you have time to prepare a docuseries, especially as one as hyped as this one, that you could have gotten right. And by the way, didn't MJ even say that he had this restriction? Yeah, that's the thing. He, he definitely emphasized it, Gil. Now, I'm curious as if this was just exaggerated as some things tend to be when it comes to as big of a stage like this documentary. And maybe they narrowed it down to the first couple games because you see it right around that area. And then they just made it seem like it was expanded even more. That could have been something that's a possibility. But yeah, I mean, when you get down farther in the stretch, it's just completely eliminated when they get into April. So it's interesting. And I'm curious if anything gets brought up more so about it. Yeah, um, just, you know, and this gets into a whole another thing, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's behavioral economics, how we tend to remember things differently. Years ago, the Mandela effect is the pop culture term for it. Um, anyway, someone has to bring it up. So I thought I'd be that guy. And so I am. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. 
uh, I, I'm sort of like uh, I'm, I'm almost apologetic about this because I want to stress how much I love the 30 for 30 franchise and how much I still enjoyed the doc, despite the fact the 30 for 30 uh, last dance doc, despite the fact that yesterday I came on and said, oh, I wish they had shown this uh, Jeff Ruland, uh, Michael Jordan spill in game one of his career. And then today, much broader than that, like one of the key themes of uh, part two of that was this Jerry Krause, Michael Jordan conflict about limiting him on minutes, a minutes restriction. And that's not even close to being the impression that the facts show that it's not even close to being the uh, anywhere near the impression they were given. So it's it then it makes me wonder, like, how many other things in there might I need to question? And by the way, you know, maybe did, did Scottie Pippen really was he really a manager at first in Central Arkansas? I'm just throwing out some stuff. There's other stuff in there uh, that I didn't find on my own. There's there's one other detail that we just found about, out about that is clearly not right either. Um, maybe I'll bring it up on a subsequent show. So it's not like, but this is a big thing for me. So anyway, I sheepishly point it out. I don't know how you feel about me pointing <laughs> pointing it out, Danny, but I feel like I had to. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, no, don't tell me, don't tell me. But at the same time, you need to know, because when you're watching these documentaries, whatever it may be, you assume that everything is factual, considering they're studying just, you know, this one subject. So uh, it makes sense that it would be something that you would really want to search and find out about and more stuff continuing on, considering we have eight more episodes. So uh, it's not enough to where me personally, you pointing it out, it doesn't really ruin anything for me. It's just yeah. kind of something where it's like, oh, I'm surprised it went that direction, if anything. It's not more that it, you know, ruined its yeah. character or something. It didn't really alter anything, I assume, in anybody's minds. But like you said, it's interesting to note, and it deserves to be factual. So, Well, yeah, let, let's put it this way. Am I still going to watch parts three through ten? Of course I am. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I'm an MJ. I mean, this is the thing. And I, it needs to be stressed. No one was more of an MJ freak than I was uh, in junior high and high school and beyond. Um, nothing was as big as college hoops. I mean, really, when you grow up in the D.C. area, it's the Redskins during the fall. And then it's basketball. It's college basketball. It's high school basketball. Uh, I went to basketball camp with all the D.C. greats who were like my coaches and went on to college basketball fame. So like no one was more Jordan and ACC obsessed than we were. So anyway, uh, and then into his NBA career. So I just felt the need to point it out. But yeah, like, is it going to take me away from Washington? Of course not. But, you know, um, just to set the record Welcome straight. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. Gil Alexander, uh, my next guest and I first met uh, out of all places, randomly, Pier 39 in San Francisco back in 1998, I believe he was on the way to the uh, Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. Uh, and he told me a story that day uh, that when he used to watch his beloved Chicago Bulls uh, and his friend Michael Jordan, sometimes his then newlywed wife would steal the remote, turn off the TV, stand in front of the TV and say, tell me you love me more than Michael Jordan. And after about three attempts at this, uh, he would finally relent and say, okay, okay, I love you more than I love Scotty Pippen. Now give me back the remote. Ladies and gentlemen, half the uh, PT, PTI crew, uh, along with Tony Kornheiser, it's the great Michael Wilbon. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. How do you remember this stuff? How do you remember all this? <laughs> I, I never forgot that story. I, uh, I never forgot that. I'm hoping to see if we can coax uh, 
one of your favorite Jordan stories out of you uh, coming up here. But first, um, you know, it occurs to me, you just wrote this piece at, uh, at the undefeated undefeated.com. For those who don't know, uh, it's called the last dance revealing a Michael Jordan. You've never seen before uh, among the details in there. You talked about how you would have named your son Jordan had it not been for your brother beating it to uh, beating you to his son. But was there anything, I guess it, what, what's interesting to me is, was there anything in the first two episodes of this? Cause you said you resisted the urge to watch more than two. Was there anything in the first two episodes where someone who knows Michael as well as you do and follows that team as closely as you do that surprised you or that you learned? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we're not around for the flights, team flights and locker room things and, 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 you know, sort of private meetings and discussions and, and, you know, even if you're sort of privy to some of it, you know, you had a lot of moving parts with, with 12 members on a team. And so I had no idea that Jerry Krause had told Phil Jackson, if you go 82 and O, you're still not coming back. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a stunner. When you talk about breaking up a team that a general manager has that much animosity directed toward a coach who winds up winning, uh, what if Phil went 11 rings as a coach and two as a player? Um, yeah. I mean, Jerry Krause is not in Phil Jackson's class when it comes to just sort of basketball royalty, but yet he felt the need to tell Phil Jackson that. So that that was one of them. Um, Michael revealing that he walked into a room with his then teammates and just found like a drug den, which is, is not necessarily shocking when you realize sort of what, the NBA was and was thought to be um, in the early to mid eighties. And uh, before the league, uh, you know, just had to ride herd on people before some of the star players said, Oh no, no, you're not doing that to my career. But you know, those were two of the things that jumped out at me as wow. No, I, I, I listen, I don't have any uh, pretense of knowing everything that's going to be in this documentary. As, as a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to seeing all the things I don't know. Uh, were you surprised? Now I grew up a Washington bullets fan. I grew up reading you in the Washington post. One of the things I was mentioning the other day on the show, I remember his very first Michael Jordan's very first game as a Chicago bull was against the bullets. Uh, we even ran the video of this the other day, first half first dunk attempt. He gets caught up over Jeff Ruland and he lands on his back. He's on the ground for 30 seconds. Do you remember that as, as vividly as I do? And yeah, not at all because, because, that game must have, the game was in Chicago. Yeah, it must have been. But I know I couldn't have told you that. I couldn't have told you that. I remember. I remember calling my brother, who's a season ticket holder, Bulls season ticket holder, even now. And I remember calling him like I would every night, essentially every game of Jordan's rookie season, because there was no league pass. You could see the the the, the local market games. I don't even know where I was in terms of what I might have been covering, where I might have been. But I know I didn't see his first game because I remember calling my brother saying, what did Jordan do? And that was a sentence that <laughs> hundreds of thousands of Chicagoans spoke, you know, particularly those first those years in which there was no league pass. You couldn't get the games on television unless they were the local the local games and or the local game that night. And, and I think he said he scored 23 points. I, I think I remember that. We have to check that. But But no, I didn't know it was against the Bullets. How about that? Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I, I, I didn't realize it was again and ruling. So that would have been 1984, November of 84. So ruling, I guess, 
Mahorn was Mahorn on the team as well? No, Mahorn wouldn't have been on that team yet. Um, uh, I think he, he wouldn't was. have been around I think yet. He was on the. Yeah, or maybe he. Had, or maybe you're right. Maybe he was. I'm not sure. I didn't see him on the court, so maybe you're right. Yeah, I'll say yeah, that, that's yeah. interesting. That's the, interesting. The only, um, the only other thing that was sort of surprising to me, I was mentioning yesterday, the whole, you know, I was like, what, what didn't I remember that whole 14 minute limit thing? I looked at the box yeah. scores like that never happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. The people look, that was a, the first bit of friction between Michael and management. Um, in this case, Jerry Krause, I guess, yeah, I guess Krause was already there by then because Jordan you know, had gone down to North Carolina as he revealed, and and the people knew about that. He he was playing pickup games down there. Look, it was a whole different time in terms of monitoring, you know, and, and players being sort of on their own, and the constraints that are put on today, and the sort of watchful nature of of, of front offices and players relative to nineteen mid nineteen eighties. And so, yeah, I didn't remember the specific game where John Paxson hits the free throw. I mean, it's the jumper to give them a win. But it was so funny that Michael, of course, remembers everything. He remembers everything. He remembers every possession of every game, it seems, his entire life. And um, the footage to see that and to see how frustrated he was squirming on the bench, that was, again, it spoke to the first bit of friction between Michael and the Bulls front office. And it was there would be a lot of friction by the time we got to the last dance, you know, you know, 15 years later. Yeah, it it was, uh, it was not exactly factually accurate because they gave the impression that it happened throughout the rest of the year. It did happen for a few games and who knows, maybe it did happen in key situations. What happened when he Mike, came back? It happened when he came back from the foot injury that he, he missed 67 games. So yeah, no, I when know. he came back from, from the foot injury, it did happen all of those games. It happened. Oh. That's when they put him on a minutes limit when he came back from that injury. And he didn't go off the minutes limit until he got to Boston Garden and had those great games in the playoffs. Oh, because you know what, Michael? I looked at the box scores from eighty from the late 86 uh, season because that was the end of his second season, right? 85-86. Yeah, 85-86. So the end of the, uh, you know, the end of that season. Uh, and the box scores tell something very differently. That was sort of a discrepancy that a lot of people are talking about. Like, I don't know if it was that long. So anyway, just a, a point that uh, we were researching and then, and there seemed to be a discrepancy. I have to ask you this out of contractual obligation, because most of my audience is a gambling audience to those conspiracy theorists who would say his absence between the two three peats was because of something gambling related. You would mm-hmm. say what? Uh, there was never any people could have hunches all they want. Um, there was never, you know, if, if, if there's something, if, if there was anything to that, um, uh, there would have been more smoke and ultimately some fire. And it was, there just wasn't, um, there just wasn't, I mean, people, people poked at and prodded at that topic. Wow. For years. And particularly while he was playing baseball, and it would it just it would have come out. Um, I just I, I don't see where I mean people. David Stern was interviewed a million times. Michael a million times. And I can't wait till again. I have not watched in advance. I didn't want to watch this watch this series that way. I, I, I'm interested to see how that's addressed. But there's just what's what's to it. Like wouldn't we know more by now? Doesn't everything wind up coming out? And something like that. If it's conspiracy, that means more than two people know about it. 
And one <laughs> dude know about it, just as a journalist, I, I find that people find out about it. And I just, yeah. to me, you know, it's, it's a sexy topic, Gil, but there just doesn't seem to be any there there to me. Never has been. There's no there there. I would agree with you. Uh, talking to Michael Wilbon, of course, co-host of PTI with Tony Kornheiser at ESPN. Um, final two minutes here, Michael. Then the the final question for me to you would be, with all of your intimate knowledge of Michael, as close as you are to him, is there a brief story or something, a detail that most of us would not know about him uh, that you'd like to share? Oh, goodness. How about detail? I mean, there's a million stories. I don't know how much time we have. One of my favorite stories, since we're talking about Washington and, and you being from D.C. and me working there, you know, still living there. I'll tell you the story about uh, him coming back to Washington, his first game back in D.C. after the uh, you know, he unretired. And so it's just before the double nickel game. He comes in Washington to play the Bullets. And it's shoot around about 11 o'clock in the morning. And a limousine pulls up in front of Old Capitol Center, which I'm sure you remember well. Oh, yeah. And there's an attache or somebody, I mean, a long stretch limousine, the kind of car you don't even see anymore in the culture. And the limousine pulls up and attache gets out and says to uh, someone, in, you know, where's, can I speak to Tim Hallam? And Tim Hallam was the director of Bulls Public Relations, or he ever, and it's still. And Tim said, yeah, what's, what's going on? And he says, I'm, I'm with the crown princess of, and he names a country, and she would like to meet Mr. Jordan. And there's a, the window goes down. There's a woman in back of the car of the limousine being driven with a tiara. And she looks every bit the part of some the crown princess of something or somewhere. And Hallam says, what? And the guy says, he repeats, I am so-and-so, and this is the crown princess of whatever, and she'd like to meet Mr. Jordan. And Hallam looks at this guy with total disdain and just says, buddy, there's a crown princess in every city. <laughs> that's great michael so thank you great. so much we we gotta run that's phenomenal All right, Gil. good talking thank with you, you man so much you too take care michael wilbon uh the name of the piece the last dance reveals a michael jordan you've never seen before the undefeated.com welcome back to a numbers game with gil alexander my next guest enjoyed the uh, 1980s motion picture romancing the stone so so much that he named his podcast rejecting the screen Ladies and gentlemen, it's Adam Stanko. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Gil. How are we doing? Doing very well, Adam. I, I don't know. It just popped in my head. Uh, that's what it sounded like. Uh, rejecting the screen, which you do with Noah Kozlov. One great basketball guest after another. Vin Baker on tap for the next one. Is that true? Yeah, Thursday will be Vin Baker. We've had a pretty good string recently. Uh, Adam Morrison had some traction on uh, his. He had some great Kobe stories. We've had some really good guests, but but I'm expecting some great things from Ben Baker. It should be good. Yeah, who had a very interesting uh, trajectory to his career. Let's put it that way. You can follow Adam at Naismith Lives. Adam, of course, I have you on because uh, parts three and four of the ESPN 30 for 30 docuseries, The Last Dance, chronicling uh, the final of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and the Chicago Bulls six championship uh, years. Um, parts three and four aired last night. And the first thing I just want to ask you about, I don't know if you have this experience because I'm just trying to get at some things that others might not have. Maybe others have you're watching. Are you watching it with your wife? Let me just ask you that. Yes, I am. I am. Okay. So, Whether you're watching it with I, your and, wife, your girlfriend. Oh, I was going to say it's to add context. My wife's the 
it, not only just a big sports fan, but also was a, a feature producer did, did, um, productions on outside the lines and, uh, uh, E60. So she, she's done some, some long form features for them. So she has a greater understanding of storytelling and, and, and sports and sort of the history of sports better than I'm, I'm probably, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. She has a good understanding <laughs> of, of those things. Let's just say well she done. has some great contextual knowledge. Uh, she has some great contextual knowledge. Your, yeah. Way to use your head mid sentence, Adam. I see what you did there. Um, all right. So this might not be the best question for you since she has a background. On the other hand, it might be the best question for you specifically because of the storytelling aspect for those that you may be watching this with. I'm wondering if others have this experience. I'm watching it with my girl who isn't like your wife and doesn't have a background in sports like that, but loves watching sports documentaries. She ha- she's having particular trouble following like the Rodman episode specifically, right? Episode three, the first of the two last night, how they bounced back and forth in time. For those of us who love sports <clears throat> or around during those years, we get what they're doing going back and forward in time but I had to constantly sort of reset it for her over and over and let her know, okay, now we're here. Now we're back here. Did, did you and, or your wife, uh, have that same experience at all? You know, it's, that's a great question. Uh, most notably because we actually talk about that stuff anyway, because we're both in television production, know a lot of people that, that put together documentaries and so it's actually something we talk about. It's interesting because we always discuss the idea that and if you don't keep things in straight chronological order, it's really difficult to tell a story that way because you can lose the audience really quickly, especially when it's not just known. And this is now some time has passed. So Gil, for you and I, whereas a lot of these memories like instantly, it's, oh, that's young Jordan. Or that's that's right. with Dave Corzine. That's that's before Rodman. What have you? <laughs> yeah. Those things, while they're in our mind, are different. I think for for the viewer, it is you know, especially younger viewers or or people that weren't around or that didn't mean as much to them. Uh, I think it's a different experience, and and I always think it's a difficult thing to do. Period. But certainly with this one, it's it's tricky, and they're and they're playing that game. And at the same time, as a filmmaker. I understand the mindset, what, what they're doing, because, you know, their access footage is with, you know, the 97, 98 season. And so for them, it's, that's, that's really the gold for them, but they have to provide context all throughout, especially if you're going to extend that into a 10 part series uh, for 10 hours of coverage, you need to make sure you're giving people context. So this is why this matters. This is the history with the Pistons. This is the importance of Rodman's background. But I think playing around with timelines is awful tough. And I, I do think that, yeah, it's tricky. And, and there are times though, even still, I mean, my wife will, will say, what was, you know, what was that or what was going on? And, and, you know, there again has to be provided some context. Uh, and also I think the other thing, Gil, for me, at least the interesting part, even just following along on Twitter, I'm shocked at how much people didn't know. And so all these same yeah, people on Twitter that too, have made man. the LeBron over Jordan argument, uh, especially they're the ones saying, Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, wow. That game. He was really good yeah. against Boston in the playoffs. You know, it's right here. I'm like, what? You didn't see that clip a hundred times. You didn't watch come fly with me. What are you talking about? You know? So 
Dude, I don't know uh, why that yeah, bothers me so much, but like when when they show like Trey Young's tweet on SportsCenter afterwards talking about MJ, I'm just like, I don't want to hear what Trey Young wasn't even around. Stop it! I couldn't care less what he has to say about this. I don't know why that bothers <laughs> me so much. But just to, and, and you're so right about that. Just to sort of put it in another context, like I remember everywhere I was during every Super Bowl. Like I remember whose house I was at. I remember where the TV mm. was. I remember if I wasn't watching, you know, like I just remember every single Super Bowl who won and where I was at the time, just because it's so indelible as a sports fan in my, in my mind. There's very few other things I remember that vividly as to where exactly I was. But when Michael Jordan did all of these individual things, I remember exactly where I was. The shot over Elo uh, in college was going out that night uh, to a certain place. Like, I remember exactly how I ran out to go out right after that. Uh, the shot in the finals against the Lakers where he puts it up with one hand and lays it in with the left. I remember where I was for, you know, yeah. that's how amazing this guy was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Gil, what's really interesting about, about you saying that is like, again, these, these memories are so vivid. I mean, when I was growing up, it was, I was a huge Michael, uh, I was a huge Isaiah Thomas fan. I was a fan of those Pistons teams. My brother was a big Bulls fan. And so for us, there was a great understanding of how the Bulls just could not get over the pump with the Pistons. And knowing that the Pistons had just been through that same trial by fire uh, experience in the playoffs against the Celtics, that the Pistons just could not beat the Celtics. And so understanding that contextually is huge. And also, so for us, a lot of that stuff is stuff we've seen and it's like, Oh, wow, look at this. And it's, I haven't seen this footage in a few years, but I had always seen it. But what's wild is it's, it's the stuff that they've added and the layers they've added that no one has ever seen before. Michael Jordan, you know, uh, on, on a team plane with Scotty Burrell and talking a bit joking about Scott Burrell being an alcoholic, like humanizes <laughs> Mike in a way that I don't think we've seen yeah. before. And those are yeah. the moments though, that in a way or talking about, you know, referencing having people actually come out and talk about the Ron Harper stuff and saying, Hey, he should have been the one guarding Jordan. Although we we've sort of heard those things before, but it's, it's how Ron Harper reacted, which is what made it, that it much. Was, it was so great. Adam, let me uh, put a bookmark in that. We'll come right back. Talk more about this. Uh, the last dance parts three and four. So much to talk about. And since he brings up Isaiah, let's start there next on a numbers game at VEASAN with Adam Stanko right here. Sirius XM channel 204. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Gil Alexander, Adam Stanko from the rejecting the screen podcast, talking 30 for 30s, the last dance, the final year of the, uh, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Chicago Bulls championship run, the sixth of the six seasons. Uh, you mentioned the Scotty Burrell detail from last night. Scotty Burrell's been dreading that footage for 20 years. Uh, and then uh, the, the Ron Harper reaction to Lenny Wilkins' decision to put Craig Elo on Jordan in that final sequence of the Cavs Bulls series uh, in 1989. Uh, yeah, okay. F that BS was Ron Harper's quote. Um, you know, and there's, there's always, there's always things that also from the first parts where I was like, okay, what didn't I remember? This is the other trick that, that time does to you. And the first couple episodes I was like, all right, I didn't know Scotty Pippen was a manager when he first started at central Arkansas. And the other detail I didn't remember was the 14 minute time limit, which turns out there was a reason I didn't remember that. Cause it actually didn't happen the way they said it did. Uh, last night for me, it was two things also. Uh, one, was I didn't remember that when this that when the Bulls finally beat the Pistons, it was by sweep. I did not recall that detail, Adam. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. And again, I think part of that is just because we, we think about, again, how hard it was for the Bulls to get over them. We think about these grueling series and the Jordan rules, you know, Sam Smith's book and all that. But you think back to that time and we think about it as they were never going to beat the Pistons. So you think when they finally do, it's going to be some long grueling series. And instead, yes, all of a sudden, it's funny how how memory plays tricks like that, that, that it was, it was, as you point out a sweep. What was the other one for you, Gil? The other one was, uh, and, and this is the one I'm more embarrassed by. I, you know, listen, I remember the Scotty Pippen thing, uh, in the, in the year between Jordan's three peats where he refused to, you know, Phil Jackson wasn't setting up the play for him. And so he didn't go in the game and then Kukoc hits the game winner against the Knicks. I remember details of Pippen's career pretty much left and right, but I had no recollection that that game seven, the year before the bulls finally broke through against the Pistons was the Scotty Pippen migraine game. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Yeah, it's that's funny that you should that you should say that. It's and in a weird way for me, some of these have, have uh, you know melded together. Now the documentary was like, okay, that's right, that's how that happened. You know, there there's yeah. sort of these moments that are still brought up uh, in time or in lore. And again, I think it goes back to like us having a different understanding, being I hate to say a bit older probably, but but this younger generation of not understanding any of this stuff and, and not getting context. And of course the hard part with all this is, is that you need, like you need the full picture to understand who MJ is. And, and what I'm really glad about with the documentary is not so much is not this argument about the greatest of all time, which is part of the reason Jordan released this. I mean, this footage I had heard about 20 years ago uh, from people who were working at NBA entertainment and they were telling me about footage they had logged and Oh, this crazy behind the scenes stuff and all this. And one day they're going to release it. And it was always sort of talked about. And you didn't think you'd ever, it ever see the light of day. It was sort of this project that I didn't kind of believe, uh, you know, like rumors about certain NBA players that we hear, we go, mm, I don't know if that's true. And then all of a sudden you get verified <laughs> yeah. one day and, it, and you know, in the remote Shelburne article, he, he talked about that. It was, it was released after, you know, um, 2016, he was like, all right, it's time. You know, Jordan finally uh, agreed to it. It was, it was, he had the keys to this, it, but the interesting thing isn't so much for me about the goat argument, because I don't think I don't have an argument there. I, I think Jordan's the greatest of all time. I think what's great is I love looking back and getting a sense of what was going on in that era. And at that time, and I think just an appreciation of sort of a guy's career and what they went through. And, and just, again, it's their stories. Now I remember them. And I think that's, you know, partly how memory works. I remember them as these, you know, Oh, it's a migraine game or uh, Dennis Rodman kicks the cameraman. You know, you have these moments yeah. that you remember the push off or the shot against totally. Cleveland. But again, putting some things into perspective, I think is interesting. And you know, even that Ron Harper thing, just to just go back for a moment of that, that game five, I was, I was watching last night. Uh, after the documentary, I went and pulled up that game. It was interesting. Ron Harper was on Jordan the entire time. And there was no question. He was oh. a, he was a better defender at that time. Ron Harper, superior athlete, a uh, great leaper was giving Jordan. I don't know. He wasn't giving him fits by any, by any stretch, but it was like the, you know, it's like the bill Buckner game where all of a sudden people were like, bill Buckner shouldn't even have been in the game. It was the same thing. There's no yeah. reason to think Craig Elo as opposed to Ron Harper should have been guarding Jordan on, on that shot. And also Jordan had shot really poorly from the mid range, like throughout that game, he was missing everything. 
So that also made the shot even, even more spectacular. But yeah, so for me, a lot of this stuff has been really cool to go back and, and then also having other contextual knowledge, like I'm reading Phil Jackson's book, 11 rings. And in it, he provides some other context to the Jerry Krause relationship. Jerry Krause wanted to draft Phil Jackson out of college when, when Phil Jackson was in North Dakota and Phil Jackson was drafted by the Knicks in the second round. Jerry Krause thought he'd last till the third round. Jerry Krause was the, the head scout for the bullets. And he said for years, Jerry Krause was kicking himself that Phil Jackson, that he didn't move up, that they didn't go up and get him in the second round. They thought for sure he'd last to the third round when they actually had, you know, more than two rounds back then for the NBA draft. And it's just really interesting that that's where their relationship even started. And then Krause always had his eye on Phil Jackson as a coach. And of course brought him in as assistant and the rest is history. But uh, providing some of that other context, I think is always really important for the full, full, full story, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think you're right. And Jerry Krause gets murdered in this in this documentary. And honestly, he deserves a lot of credit for building that team around Jordan. By the way, one of the great moments of the doc so far, Jerry Krause dancing in that bus after they beat the Pistons. <laughs> Uh, while the, while they played it, I love the music they chose. They, they chose cool mode D, uh, 1988, how you like me now, which was really the, the, uh, the hit that put cool mode D on the map for real. Uh, and I, I, I was so charged up during that scene because of that music. Uh, we're talking to Adam Stanko from the rejecting the screen podcast. Um, by the way, also for basketball heads, cause I know you're, you're super into it as well. I talked about that Kawhi shot against the Sixers a couple years ago uh, for the Raptors on their way to the NBA championship, how you could have done, we could have done two segments on that shot alone, how the ball looked like it changed in midair before it bounced four times on the rim. That shot Jordan hit over Elo. Like if you really break that shot down, he had to like take that ball moved in his hand. He had to almost regrip it. Just a, just a, a, amazing. And we got a different angle from the documentary of it too, which I thought was interesting. Uh, before we go here, uh, Adam, Isaiah specifically. Mm-hmm. And, and I was listening to something. Reggie Miller was on with Dan Patrick last week, I believe. And Reggie Miller was on for about 20 minutes talking about that. You know, Dan Patrick asked him, if you like ran into Michael today, what would you do? And Reggie Miller was like, I might punch him in the face. But Reggie Miller <laughs> is really <laughs> thoughtful and really deliberate, chooses his words very carefully. What he meant by that was just it hurts him so much. He loved the competition. He mm-hmm. knows Michael's the greatest. I know you're an Isaiah guy, but I'm with Mike on this. Like, come on, man. You're still defending your actions back then. I don't buy into that whole, oh, the Celtics did this, so we did it things. How about the fact that Jordan and them shook your hands both years? Oh, listen, I mean, it's indefensible and it, and it's, it's really sad because in a way, not only was it a bad mark on, on Isaiah's career and, but also at the time it, it actually really hurt him. I mean, you have to keep in mind that that's before 92, it left a sour taste in the mouth because of the rivalry with Jordan and Pippen and Jordan and Pippen actively kept Isaiah Thomas off the dream team in 92 which I think is just one of the great travesties of all time. I mean, we forget that Isaiah Thomas won back-to-back titles in an era when bird magic and Jordan were all playing Jordan in the prime of his career. So, you know, I think if you, there's a player in history that's been underappreciated, I think it's Isaiah and, and in large part because of that one action. And again, it's not just because he did that, but that, that idea that he's been defending it for so long. And it, and it's weird because Isaiah's always 
been sort of a paradox in that on one hand, he sat down and did the interview for this documentary. And I think that's remarkable that he's doing it. I mean, we haven't heard from Joe Dumars yet. I'm sure he said no. Uh, a lot of the guys on the Pistons may have said no. Uh, Isaiah, who had no real reason to do this, has done so. He does the interview. So in a way, you give him credit. Like, wow, Isaiah sat yeah, down and talked so. about MJ. And 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 also throughout his throughout his life, I mean, Isaiah has always talked about how much MJ meant to the city of Chicago. Um, and also, you know, that he was the best player in the NBA and, and his greatness, even though Isaiah got him, I mean, Isaiah had beaten him for years and Isaiah, I mean, he grew up in Chicago. There was, there's a lot of reason for their resentment and animosity, but it's weird because my point being that Isaiah has, has done so many of the right things. And then you come out and during that interview, instead of saying we shouldn't have done it, other teams had done it to us. And we, at the yeah. time thought we could have done it. But like, you know what? I really regret that. You say that it's over and instead it becomes, again, it's add more fuel to the fire. And then now people even now are like, why did Isaiah do that? And it's like, man, that was a long time ago. But, but if Isaiah is still defending it, then people have a right to say that. Yeah, but it's because it's like he's still playing to his old teammates. Like he doesn't want to lose cred with them. It's like, dude, we're it's twenty twenty for God's sakes. Like, let that go. Um, I could do two hours with you on this, and and maybe we'll have you back in subsequent weeks. Not maybe we will have you back in subsequent weeks to do this uh, as a recap. Last thing, and I only have ten seconds here for the answer. But am I right mm-hmm. to beat the fourteen minute limit thing? Never happened, horse. Like, am I, I don't want to be that one guy who's doing it. I'm right to say that if you're a documentarian, document correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And we discussed this on our podcast. And I'll just say quickly that it, it wasn't just 14 minutes. It kept rising and it was completely yeah. handled poorly in the documentary. That, that information was just flat out incorrect. Thank you, Adam. Adam Stanko, rejecting the screen. Adam, take care of your kids. Enjoy, man. Be safe. Thanks, brother. Adam Stanko, Thanks, brother. Right here on a number. Back game. to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Uh, let's talk the Last Dance, man. Thirty for thirty documentary. Uh, we're going to get into some of the betting lines here momentarily with uh, Blake Mahoney from SportsOddsHistory.com. I was up late at night researching these betting lines uh, for the Jordan years, but I got to highlight this once again, and I don't really mean the word highlight. I probably should say low light. As you know, Danny, uh, last week. I was on the show and I was, I had Michael Wilbon on uh, Adam Stanko to talk about this. And I, I pointed out before all of that, I'm like this whole deal in parts one and two where Jordan, the impression we were given is that Jordan, you know, had this 14 minute limit for the rest of the season when he returned from injury in his second season, the, uh, the 84, 85, excuse me, the uh, 85, 86 NBA season was just nonsense. And we could throw up the tweet that I, uh, that I put out. I went back and I logged all the games, his minutes, uh, towards the end of the, uh, 86 season. He had a 14 minute cap. Never. I mean, maybe the first couple games, right. When he came back in mid March, 13 minutes and 14 minutes, but then it was, this is all on the left side of the screen, 15, 16, 16, 19, 22, 23, 26, 28, 31, 31, 33, 37, and then 29 for the, for the, uh, season ender in the regular season. And it was, of course, uh, non-existent in the playoffs. But the impression given in the documentary was that this was a limit that was killing Jordan for the rest of the regular season and that it was a huge source of conflict between him and Jerry Krause. 
I get it. He still hated Jerry Krause, but you're doing a documentary. You're a documentarian. You need to give the correct impression. This was they they devoted an, a huge portion of of that uh, of those two episodes that night to this supposed 14 minute limit. Didn't happen that way. Uh, the other thing I sent you there was also they flashed up some standings. They had to apologize for this, where they flashed up standings from uh, an early Jordan season. And if you look above the Bulls, uh, you see Wizards and not Bullets listed. And they actually had to come out and apologize. There it is right there. They were showing the Bulls record, uh, their final record in that 85-86 Jordan second season. Yeah, the Wizards didn't exist. Number six seed right there was the Bullets. So they had to apologize for that. And then, you know, I'm thinking, I was joking, Danny. I was like, oh, watch them make errors here in parts three and four. You know this whole thing about Jordan going to Vegas to get Rodman out of bed for this vacation he needed? He never went to Vegas. Sports Illustrated had to write a piece about it yesterday, and the director, uh, director Jason Hare, had to admit. He's like, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I'm sorry we gave that impression. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he actually came out and said, yeah, um, didn't really happen that way. I'm sorry that it was a little misleading. I'll get you the exact quote in a minute, but it's just, I mean, it's a documentary, Danny. I mean, and I keep asking people, and, and uh, folks are starting to come to my side. It's like, you got to get this right. Come on. This isn't a two hour live radio show where we make mistakes every day. This is something that lives in perpetuity. You're absolutely right. I mean, when you're watching these documentaries and this one specifically with so much, you know, excitement around it I, and everybody waiting I, for, yeah, the hype around it. And we're expecting everything to pretty much be factual. And that's what you expect out of any documentary you watch specifically this one with so much, like you said, hype around it. So when they're kind of stretching and fabricating these stories, yeah, it tarnishes it a little bit. You get the gist of it overall, what they're aiming toward, but they're really just expanding it to try to fit this narrative that they're trying to push so much. And look, it happens all the time, but it it shouldn't be a constant thing, especially with this documentary. And when, when I was watching it, at least too, Gil, I don't know if you felt this way, but when they were talking about Rodman going to Vegas, it seemed like when they were like, Jordan's going to get him out of Vegas. It was like, no way. Like Jordan just like randomly also in the season flew to Vegas. It, it seemed a little bit too good to be true. Yeah. And by the way, just to clarify, it didn't come out of Jordan's mouth. Here's the quote from Jason Hare. I wish that we were better at identifying to people that Michael didn't get on a plane and go to Vegas to get him, but he did grab, grab him out of bed. Uh, listen, for those three or four people on, uh, on Twitter who are like, I, I didn't think he went to Vegas. I rewatched it last night. It's between episodes three and four. They totally gave the wrong impression. Betting lines next on a numbers game at Visa from the Jordan years. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. It is A Numbers Game. Gil Alexander, live from San Francisco. So yesterday, uh, you know, we've all been watching uh, The Last Dance, 30 for 30 Doc. And I want to stress that, uh, you know, while I'm pointing out some of the the fake outs, the misleading stuff in the documentary, which kind of, you know, diminishes it for me, it does. Uh, It's still fascinating to watch, and we all still remember, those of us of a certain age, still remember living through the Jordan years. Uh, And I want to give credit to Chad Rance on Twitter, who gave me the idea yesterday. He was like, hey, you think you can uh, tell us about these betting lines on some of these series and the games? And I'm like, well, I can't, but that's a great idea. I'll have to research it. And he suggested having Chrissy or Vinny or Jimmy on. Uh, Chrissy chimed in because I did ask him about it. Uh, and from a bet from the sports book perspective, he said, you're talking about Chris Andrews. Now I remember the two Utah series talking about the two, uh, finals, the last two championship finals 
<clears throat> and the Portland series, which was the one before that. So basically the final three beat, he said they were huge decisions in the book's favor uh, where he was perched. And uh, he was basically saying, pretty sure we needed the Bulls all the time. We needed them versus the Lakers in the first championship, too. Uh, overall, Jordan was fine with him. He said he sort of felt the rise of Jordan uh, before the curve and, uh, and adjusted accordingly. So that was Chris's reaction to it. And then I remembered, uh, you know, I've had this gentleman on many times on the show, several times. Most prominently, I think most recently, when we did our whole best of the decade 2010 to 2019, where we went through every sport, the best sports betting teams of each decade in every sport. Uh, his name is Blake Mahoney. He's from sportsbettingodds.com, and we welcome him in now to help us through this. Good morning to you, Blake. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. You're at SO History, by the way, on Twitter, people should know. So I, because I right, heard from you yesterday. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. That That's uh, sportsoddshistory.com, by the way sportsoddshistory.com. We should, uh, yeah. On, on Twitter though, what's your Twitter handle? You, you got it. Uh, S O history at S O history. I'm sorry if I misspoke there. All right. So I got most of these. So I, I looked all of this up myself last night, but I want to help. Uh, I want to, if you wonder if you could help us fill in the blanks cause your site is fabulous. So let's start and we're just going to highlight through the years here. Oh, it's phenomenal. Dude. I, I recommend it to anybody who wants to look at historical betting odds, uh, it's about as great of a treasure of that as you can find anywhere. So let's start with year two, if we could, Blake. Uh, the famous series that was highlighted in the 30 for 30, the last dance doc, when Jordan in his second year, he came back from injury. Um, he played the last stretch of games of the regular season. They ended up playing the Celtics. Bulls were an eight seed. Celtics were a one seed. And they highlighted that 63 point game from Jordan, uh, his biggest output ever in the playoffs game two of that series. What was the line in that game? Just out of curiosity. Right. So they are 14 point underdogs uh, for that game. They were coming off game one uh, where they lost by 19 and they were 13 and a half point underdogs in, in game one. So they bumped it up just a bit for game two. I see. And ended up losing game two in overtime. So the Bulls uh, backers got the money, but Bulls couldn't win any of those games in that series. So let me go through, and this is what I found, and we'll uh, we'll fill in the blanks here. Let's fast forward to the years where the Bulls couldn't get past the Pistons. So 87-88, they play the Pistons in the Eastern Conference semis. Um, they end up losing that series to Detroit four games to one. What was the series price in that series? Right. So Detroit was uh, minus 240, while Chicago was uh, plus 200. Okay. So the year, the first year they met, this was the first of three years where Detroit beat Chicago in the playoffs. This was the first year, 87, 88, Eastern Conference semis. Detroit minus 240 as a number two seed, Chicago plus 200 as a three seed uh, in the East, and uh, Detroit beat them in five. Then, even more famously, we go to 88-89. Um, that series, of course, that was highlighted in the documentary, the famous opening round series against the Cleveland Cavaliers, in which Jordan hit the game winner over Craig Elo in the deciding game five at Cleveland. What was the spread in that game? Do we have that? The Bulls were right. Yeah, the Bulls were plus six uh, going into that game. Uh, so for the series, they were were plus three fifty. And, and if you remember, uh, Cleveland was uh, fifty seven twenty five that year, and they had they actually had the second best record in the Eastern Conference. And the only reason they were the 
the three seed was because of the NBA seeding rules where the, the other division winner uh, automatically was the two seed. And even though oh. the Knicks were 52 and 30 that year. Oh, very cool. Good note. Uh, so, so the, the bulls again, plus three fifty in that series against the Cavs, which they end up winning on uh, in five on that Jordan buzzer beater over Elo. They were actually plus three fifty in the next series, the Eastern conference semis, I believe it was against the Knicks. They won that as well. And then what were they in the Eastern conference finals when Detroit beats them again? Uh, plus four fifty. Plus four fifty. That's eighty eight, eighty nine. So this is the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, the Bulls were plus four fifty as the six. Uh, Detroit number one seed in the East at minus six fifty. Detroit beat them in six games. And then eighty nine ninety, the third of the three seasons in which Detroit gets the best of the Bulls. This also in the Eastern Conference Finals. What was that series price? Chicago was plus two twenty. Uh, Detroit minus two eighty. And Detroit beat them in seven. Do you remember? Because that game seven highlighted in the documentary, known as the Scottie Pippen migraine game. Do you remember, or do you have a note of what the the line was for game seven specifically? Right, the the Bulls were uh, seven seven and a half point underdogs. Seven and a half point underdogs. Do we do we know if they covered? I didn't check this part. Do we know if they covered at all? Uh, they lost by nineteen. Uh, so yeah, they, they, did, they did not yeah. cover. That's right. That's right. They got crushed in that game, Pip, the Pippin migraine game. So really, what's yeah. interesting is the run up to the championships. They were, you know, pretty sizable dogs in most of these. And and again, they hadn't won a championship yet. This was still the rise of the Bulls. But to know that they were, you know, as big as plus four fifty dogs in the 88, 89 Eastern conference finals. And then in game seven of the 89, 90, even though there were only plus two twenty in that series, they were still huge dogs in game seven. It's like they still weren't, you know, people, people who lived through it remembered at that time, how, you know, uh, you know, uh, menacing the bad boys were, how they were at this point, uh, defending champs. And in 89, 90, they were defending champs and really the bulls, especially without Pippen, um, although I don't know if we really knew that Pippen wasn't playing in that game till late, you know, so that's an interesting line because I, I'm not sure. Yeah, we had and, that. And, you know, that's, that's obviously the, uh, you know, I'm getting these lines from, from, uh, newspaper archives. So that's kind of the morning line. So it could be yeah. that that line might've changed leading up to game time. If there was news yeah. about, uh, Pippen's migraine, I would imagine it did. Uh, we'll come back. We'll give you all the lines of all the championship years and the years in between the two three-peats. Those are interesting as well, where Scottie Pippen ruled the roost. Coming back on A Numbers Game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to A Numbers Game with Gil Alexander. It's Gil Alexander. Blake Mahoney from SportsOddsHistory.com, an invaluable resource, Blake. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's get through these now. These are the championship years. The first three-peat, the 90-91 season, they get to the Eastern Conference Finals. The Pistons had beaten them the previous three years. The Bulls go out and sweep the Pistons. What was the series price that year when the Bulls were the number one seed? So the Bulls were minus 270, Pistons plus 210. Okay. Still don't see the Bulls yet as prohibitive favorites at any of these. Uh, and then in the finals that year, they take on the Lakers. We saw this in the documentary. Uh, the Lakers ended up winning game one, and then the Bulls beat them in five, dominated afterwards. What was the preflop series price in the NBA finals? 
Bulls uh, minus 200, Lakers plus 170. And you have another great note on your site. On November 2nd of that season, so November 2nd of 1990, you could have gotten the Bulls to win the championship at, at as high as 7-1. to one. That's about as high as they got at any point in that season. 7-1, to one, obviously, they do end up winning their first of six titles with Jordan. Okay, then 91-92, uh, the Bulls end up in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks, and the Knicks take them to seven. What was the pre-flop on that? I mean, the Bulls probably were huge favorites, and they got taken to seven there. Right. Yeah. So Chicago that year was sixty-seven fifteen, and so Chicago's minus twenty-five hundred in in that Eastern Conference Finals. Wow. And they had to and they had to go seven to uh, eliminate the uh, Knicks. Then in the NBA Finals, that was the Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks. NBA Finals, they take on the Portland Trailblazers. That was the finals. We haven't yet seen it in the documentary, but that's the one where Michael just starts hitting threes and, you know, puts his hands in the air like, I don't know what's happening, looking over at Magic Johnson mm-hmm. on the side of the court. Uh, they played the Blazers. What were they pre-flop series price? Minus 250. Minus 250. And you could get them. The best price you could get on them that year was back in November of 91 at plus 250. So again, like not all that spectacular and minus 250, not that huge of a favorite in the NBA finals in 91, 92 against the Blazers. Then year three of the first repeat uh, in the Eastern conference finals, they take on the Knicks. The Knicks were the number one seed in the Eastern conference that year. And the bulls were two. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. What was the series price? So Chicago was minus 150 for, for that. Uh, Eastern Conference Finals. And ended up beating them in six games, beat the Knicks in six. And then the 92-93 Finals, the third of the first three-peat, the third title, they take Charles, they take on Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns, where Charles Barkley famously said, uh, you know, uh, it's our destiny to win the NBA title. And uh, Michael Jordan shot back, it's your destiny to get beat by us. And that's exactly what the Bulls did. What were they pre-flop series there? Chicago was minus 240, and that was with uh, Phoenix having home court. With Phoenix having home court. That's right. By the way, best price you get on the Bulls at any point that season was plus 120 on November 6, 1992. By the way, that was one of those strange years where you could get them at plus 120 in November, but you'd actually get the best price was actually right before the playoffs at three to one. So you could get plus 300 right before the playoffs. Yeah. Right, and the Suns were actually uh, the the favorites going into the playoffs, but that obviously uh, flipped by the time uh, they, they reached the finals. Yeah. All right, then Jordan goes off and he plays baseball. Uh, and he plays it for, he, he leaves the game of basketball for 17 months total. Uh, the 93-94 season, he's not around at all. This is Scottie Pippen's year. He is uh, an NBA all-star. He's a first-team NBA All-Star, Defensive Player of the Year. He is just, by any stretch, uh, one of the dominant players in the NBA that year. We haven't gotten to it in the documentary yet, but yet that's what the Bulls were. Their season win total was 44 that year. They exceeded it by 11 games, had 55 wins on that season. But they go to the Eastern Conference Finals. Here are the Knicks' opportunity to play them without Jordan. Um, And this is the famous... Game seven, or this is the famous series, I should say, where Scottie Pippen actually sits 
refuses to go in the game. The, the Bulls were up. This is game three of this series against the Knicks. The Bulls were actually up by 20. They squandered a 20-point lead with 1.8 seconds left in the game. Phil Jackson draws up a play for Tony Kukoc. Pippen's like, forget this. I'm sitting on the bench. Kukoc ends up hitting the game winner to uh, put that series at Knicks two, Bulls one. So the Bulls stayed alive, but they end up losing in seven. What was the pre-flop on that series? Chicago was plus 160, and for game seven, they were four-and-a-half-point underdogs. Four-and-a-half-point dogs in game seven. Wow. Yeah, New York minus 180, Chicago plus 160 before the series. Epic seven-game series. Uh, Then in 94-95, this is the one where Michael comes back in mid-March, right before the playoffs. Get some tune-up games. In fact, his fourth game back, he drops the double nickel at Madison Square Garden. He's wearing number 45. But they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, do the Bulls, and they take on Penny Hardaway, Shaq, and the Orlando Magic. And they get beaten six. Orlando was the number one seed. The the Bulls were like the five seed, right? Because they hadn't had Jordan for most of that year. But were they the betting favorite in that series? Uh, sorry. Yeah. Chicago was minus 185 and that was the, for the Eastern conference semi, uh, semifinals. So, oh, semifinals. I'm sorry. I said finals, right? Semifinals. That's right. Orlando then ended up going on to win the Eastern conference and then get, got swept by the Rockets, uh, in the NBA finals the year after the Rockets beat the Knicks who had beaten the bulls, uh, in the Pippen year, if you will, the non Jordan year, the same series as the OJ chase, um, the Rockets Knicks series that went seven games. So the Rockets won back to back in Jordan's absence, absence, literal first year, um, late return in that second year in between three peats. So then Jordan has an off season to prepare. He's back from baseball. It's not just this stretch of games in 94, 95. This is the 95, 96 season. They win 72 basketball games, 72 and 10. And now you see all these pieces were like, yeah, they could have win. They could have won more if they wanted to. Uh, Chicago ends up playing the Seattle Supersonics in the finals. What was the pre-flop price on the 72 win Bulls in that series? They were minus 950 to uh, Seattle plus 650. <laughs> There you go. There's the numbers I'm looking for. Minus 950. Uh, <laughs> Seattle was plus 650 coming back. Bulls end up winning it in six. I want to say the Bulls went up three to nothing, and then the, the Sonics won two, and then the Bulls won a six, but don't hold me to that. That's just my recollection of it. Best price you could have gotten the, on the Bulls, by the way, to win the title during that 72-win season, plus 350 back on November 3rd of 1995. So they win their fourth title. They come back in 96-97. Their season win total after the 72 win season is 64 and a half, Blake. They end up with 69 wins. That's all after the 72 win season uh, in 96, 97. This is the first of the finals against the Utah Jazz. What was the pre-flop series price there? Uh, Minus 600, Utah plus 400. Wow. Jeez. All right. And by the way, the best price you could have gotten on the Bulls all that year after the 72 win series, uh, 72 win season where they won uh, their fourth title, as you might imagine, wasn't very good. Plus 100 on October 30th of 1996. They end up beating the Jazz in the finals in six. And then 97-98, the last dance, the season that this 10-part docuseries on ESPN is based all around, even though they're jumping back and forth. Um this was uh, a, a season where their win total had dropped to 57 and a half 
as we have seen on this documentary, Scotty Pippen was hurt. They didn't, you know, he had delayed his surgery, so he wasn't going to play uh, for at, at the very least the first part of the season. There was even some doubt as to whether or not he would ever play for the Bulls again. So their season win total was 57 and a half. It had been reduced. Still respect, but knowing that Pippen wouldn't be there for at least a good spell of it. They end up winning 62 games that year. Um, they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, though, Blake, and it's the Indiana Pacers. And Reggie Miller and the Pacers have been waiting for this for a long time. And this was maybe the closest the Bulls ever came to losing. They beat the, during the run, they beat the Pacers in seven. What was their pre-flop price and what was the game seven line? So they're minus 600 for the series and then uh, eight point favorites for the, uh, for game seven. And they only ended up winning by five. Only ended up winning by five. And I want to say, and again, this on memory, I think Tony Kukoc went off in that game. So like Jordan was still their leading scorer, but I think Kukoc was their second leading scorer. He hit a bunch of shots in the second half uh, that were key in that game. And so then after getting by the Pacers, and by the way, like in the first round of that year, and I hope they continue to highlight this in the documentary, like they were on their last legs. They were old. Like they, they swept the Washington bullets in the first round in 97, 98. But each of those three games was like a sweat for the bulls. Um, so they, they get past, past the Pacers, the Eastern Conference Finals. They play the Jazz again. The Jazz are waiting for them yet again. This, of course, the famous year where uh, in Game 6, Jordan and the Bulls win their sixth title on the Jordan push-off of Byron Russell. What was the pre-flop price there? So uh, Utah had home court there, but Chicago was still a slight uh, minus 115 favorite. Uh, and then, right, yeah, minus 115. Minus 115. I have him at minus 125, but somewhere in that pocket. And the Jazz were just a slight dog at plus 105. The best price you could get uh, on the Bulls during the regular season was actually the same price you could get them uh, for just before the playoffs. Plus 140 on Halloween, plus 140 just before that postseason. Blake Mahoney at SO History. This, the site is sports betting, excuse me, sportsoddshistory.com. Pardon me, sportsoddshistory.com. Blake, uh, an invaluable resource, man. I can't thank you enough. Yep, thank you. Blake Mahoney, uh, who uh, I had a ball researching that stuff last night. Um, and thank you to him for filling in all the blanks. Just phenomenal uh, information. That's how the Bulls were assessed in the betting markets throughout their six championships in between and before Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil all right Alexander. now we are post episode five and six of espn's 30 for 30 docuseries the last dance still to come episode seven to ten but uh in the week that i was off from work thought i'd uh get some reaction to five and six and throw this up as a podcast with our buddy from the rejecting the screen podcast adam stanko what's up adam how are you Gil, good to talk to you, man. Yeah, I get to see you, man, with your city T-shirt. <laughs> I like it. Of course, people listening to the pod can't see that, so that's sort of irrelevant. That's true. That's um, true. So, all right, five and six. I didn't love the episodes, but still, nonetheless, captivating in its own way because we lived it. We lived through the Jordan years. What did you think? Yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you, early on in episode five, and for refresher for people, it was the all-star stuff and the Kobe Bryant stuff. I was still fascinated by by some of the 
behind the scenes video that you don't typically get a chance to see. So Jordan talking about how Kobe's basically taking it all on himself and all yes. he cares about is trying to score and go one-on-one. That's the stuff that's fascinating. And I think it's it's fascinating for two reasons. One, because Jordan hasn't allowed that and the NBA by default hasn't allowed that kind of stuff to come out, right? We haven't seen that side of Jordan as much. They they've sort of kept that under lock and key. And also the fact that like to me that's that's the interesting part is like the stuff that we don't know about already. This a lot of these other storylines, the the handshake stuff with the pistons that's been blown up. Um yeah, sure, the Jordan rules, um the Sun series against Barkley, all those kinds of things like we I yeah, we remember fondly. I mean, you know, or that oh Jordan was need he needed some encouragement to distribute the ball, or that Phil Jackson has an affinity for Native American culture. Those are all things I, I knew before coming <laughs> into this right. stuff. But it's those moments, and it's funny actually about the Kobe stuff. A uh, buddy of mine worked at NBA Entertainment during the stretch where they were logging a lot of this footage in the late '90s, and he had told me a story at the time that. After the Bulls had played the Sixers in a game, uh, the interviewers were asking Jordan some question about about Iverson. And he gave this great answer, you know, oh, the kid's got a lot of talent. I really appreciate his game. He's the future, all this stuff. They get to the locker room and Jordan is like behind the scenes now. And he's like that MF and weed smoker. That kid is a punk, whatever. And he's like ripping into Iverson. And like, and meanwhile, they have a great relationship. Are they, you know, they have a great relationship now, but like, that's what his real thoughts were. And that's what I always found fascinating was like, yeah, what does Jordan really think about the other guys in the league? Not what's he going to say to the media? So, you know, that story you just told. So now we're now we're sort of getting off the actual documentary itself. But the rumor that I heard, and I don't know if this is true or if you've heard this, uh, is that you know, the reason that Jordan ultimately decided to release the footage is because Jason Hare did the Iverson doc and Jordan had been such a fan of that doc. But I understand that the reason that Iverson is not in this doc is because Jason Hare kind of showed him that footage that you were just talking about. And Iverson was like, that, that ain't cool. And he's not in it. So he idolized Jordan and he might have this great relationship, but he's not in the doc because of that. Because I think Jason Hare wow. thought it was like sort of a joke to show him, hey, look, look at this. And Iverson was like, yeah, F that. So I don't know if that's true, but that's one of the rumors I've heard about this. That's an incredible story. Well, it's yeah. funny that then things come full circle, because just like when I heard about that at the time from from my friend, it was that that's 20 years ago that I had heard about that. And it was like, oh, OK, there's this footage no one will ever see. You know, it's locked yeah. in a vault like like news crews have their blooper stuff. But that's been the thing about The Last Dance that I think. That I've I've loved and I've appreciated what would and the challenge that Jason Hare has in trying to get people to understand context and what was going on and what made Jordan so great and and what built the Bulls. Well, but the timelines get tricky as he's going back and forth. And I yes. one of the things that I've actually had sort of an issue with watching is that and I know they're trying to make it feel as big as possible, but all the times that they're coming in and out of break, in and out of commercial break, you know, for those of us that aren't necessarily in the media business, but like to go in and out of break, they're using like celebrity endorsements and they're telling little stories. And oftentimes they're not even great they're stories. Flat. It's just, those are falling so flat. Yes. Yeah. But I they, agree. but they, but they get, because there's so much going into the documentary that they sort of become part of it. They, I, I know that ESPN is trying to sort of separate it and say, Hey, 
before we get to the rest of the last dance, check out what Carmelo Anthony had to say when he watched this game <laughs> against the Knicks or whatever. But it's like it sort of becomes part of the doc. And, and I think in a way like oversaturates it in a way with uh, with bad stuff that I don't necessarily need. Yeah. You know, so there's a couple of things you were saying there. I'm trying to remember them all. But one of them last week when you and I talked, I, I mentioned if you watch this with your wife or your girlfriend, um, which might have come off as sexist to some, I hope it didn't, but someone who was not as into Jordan, say, as you were, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you had to really explain the timeline to them. Even I now am starting to get annoyed by the timeline jumps sometimes, which I think you might have intimated right there. But it's like, okay, oh, just and I had to keep explaining. I'm like, okay, well, now they're back to, to year six, champion, you know, the last dance year. And, and again, prefacing it all by saying Jason Hare had a monumental task. And I, this is the main thing, because most of my comments during this, just to, in the attempt to say something different that no one else is saying, have been sure. of this nature of, oh, here's what I thought was an omission. Here's what I thought was like a half-truth or misleading. And so I hope it doesn't come across, I'm sure inevitably it will, that I'm like, oh, you know, terrible. That's not at all what I mean. What I mean is that we were all so immersed in Jordan's career, especially like you and I who grew up on the East Coast, who grew up in and I always say this in D.C., we were right in the middle of Big East and ACC country, and we were obsessed mm. with Jordan, obsessed. The Lenny Bias, Michael Jordan years. So, you know, some of the things that, that came across to me yesterday is most of this audience is a gambling-focused audience. And right. so the most of the folks who are listening to this pod are probably going to be like, wow, I wish they really had fleshed out more of the gambling allegations part of it. And, you know, that's where it gets into this whole thing of, Jordan had final say on this stuff, right? Like he had final yeah. editorial control. So, you know, you're not going to get, I mean, you're, you're going to get the sanitized version. You're not going to get, oh, here's another viewpoint that might have been rumor laden or whatever. I happen to believe that, you know, he didn't leave the game because of gambling debts. That's just my belief. But like I have friends, Adam, who like no matter what you tell them, no matter, like I had, you know, just earlier in this podcast, Wilbon was on talking about how, yeah, it's just, there's nothing to it. No matter what you tell them, they're like, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Like there's some people you just can't convince of anything. Well, and you know, what's interesting too, is during the last dance, as they went, went through some of that, it was almost as if the media owes Michael Jordan an apology for how they treated him with those allegations. And what's what's really been the fascinating dynamic to me is someone who knew a lot of what had happened at the time, um, have heard a bunch of stories, people have recounted those stories, people that I've interviewed, what have you. But what's really interesting is that I can now look at it with a different perspective as if, okay, if this happens now to some of the guys now. and. And I've been sometimes critical of LeBron and some of the other superstars in the league. And I look at it like, man, can you imagine now if LeBron James, there was a check <laughs> for $57,000 to some Jeez. shady character, some felon or something. Slim. I mean, yeah, it, it's just, and it wasn't just him. It was, it was other guys that Jordan had these associations with now. And, and Jordan was able to just say like, Okay, I learned my lesson. You know, I, I should try to figure out the guys I'm playing golf with. Which, first of all, I, I, I can't imagine that stopped Jordan in the future. He's in a foursome, and he's like, "Wait, who's this guy? We're yeah. not playing with this guy." Like, that, of course, that didn't happen. I think the big thing that 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 does need to be examined was like, at what level? There was no question that that dominated a part of his life. Now, he was such a great athlete that, like Rodman, who could use partying and go out and do that all night long and still it not affect his play. Jordan was able to overcome his 
you know, all night long gambling binges and stuff. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't there weren't issues there, per se, or that it wasn't an addiction for him or that, you know, certainly the characters he was involved with were that there's there's a lot that went on. I don't I, I am a firm believer and I'd like to say on record, like I do not believe at all that he was gambling on games or or anything else. And I also do believe what he said that, like, he's so competitive and I love that that uh, quarter, the quarter game they were playing. Oh, who gets closest, closest to the wall? To like the that wall. one is just the stuff that's just amazing. You see, <laughs> he's about to take the, the security guards twenty bucks. Like that's the best part of all. Like it's so nuts. But but like it's the, his competitive nature is that no matter what, it's I'm going to bet on myself to win. Like that's just, that's who he is. Like yeah. that, more than anyone else, I think in human history. But. Um, but I do think that they 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 missed opportunities to go deeper, and I I I don't know if the last four will touch on it at all or not, or if that's just the end of it. That nope, that's might it. Be, we did the gambling stuff. We can move on. Yeah, it might be the end of it. Uh, you know, in, in along the lines of because you and I were talking about some stuff off air about how we're still fascinated by the the chasm between those that remember it who are of a certain age and remember the Jordan years and those who are young. And, and, you know, I was mentioning earlier on this, how on the show, how when I see quotes from Trey young or all these young ball players, it's sort of like, I, I don't care what they say. Like they didn't live it. They didn't live through those years. Um, but it really is this generational divide that we always hear on sports talk radio. Who's the best player of all time. And you were mentioning that story about LeBron, how like when LeBron came back from three, one against the warriors, he said, well, that's it. I'm the greatest of all time. And how Jordan, I think you, you couched it well, how Jordan may have had this footage as this sort of guard against, if there was ever any question to my legacy at any point during my lifetime, I can always break this out. And maybe that, you know, maybe that was part of the trigger of it. I don't know. Gil, I'll tell you, from people that are that worked at NBA Entertainment and those that knew that that was always the story internally, that this footage was being held to when Jordan always knew if it really came down to a conversation about who's the greatest, then that's what's going to happen. He's going to release it. He always has this 10-part documentary that's going to just change change the game. I don't know if it was at the time they knew it was going to be in 10 parts or, or what, but that Jordan knew that he always had this library of footage that if there was ever a question, it's amazing too, because, you know, we also grew up not just in Jordan playing and, and seeing him on NBC and all that. And everyone in the media treating him as this, this, this godlike figure, but also there was all the, all the other Jordan videos that would come out and books and shows and come fly with me. And we all had the DVDs and I mean, you know, all that stuff, it, this was in the heyday of like, you know, the VHS tape and DVD where you could get your own personal Jordan collection. So you always put him on a pedestal anyway, but I think, yeah, I think he was ready to drop this whenever there was a question. And obviously over the last couple of years, people have brought that up and, and it's weird, though. It's like father time doesn't just take a toll on athletes in terms of their performance, but it also changes your your legacy, too. And and there are going to be questions. And I thought, actually, that was fascinating part for me was the the game at Madison Square Garden, him wearing the old retro Jordans yes. and him talking about how his feet are bleeding. Yeah. It also puts things into context, because even throughout the course of his career, it's like, hey, the equipment got so much better that the stuff he was playing in when he was a rookie was like making his feet bleed later years of his career. And it's remarkable how many guys had had that. How about the, uh, 
How about the, the insightful stuff that I found to be interesting, like when the Monte Carlo footage, which was there was some new Monte Carlo footage that practice at the Olympics. And then the, when he's asked right in the lobby, hey, who's going to take the last shot, Jordan, if it comes down to it? And he's like, that's a stupid question. Stupid question. Me. Like, you know, stupid about question. the Monte Carlo footage. That that was great because Jordan is screaming. No, this is the '90s now. It's not the '80s anymore. The magic, yeah. you know, Schmack talking back and forth. There's some legendary footage of, and it, this was not in the documentary. And I'm curious as to why it wasn't of the Dream Team playing college players at the time. That included yes. Chris Webber and Bobby Hurley and guys like that. Uh, you know, a decision, I guess, not to put that in. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they didn't have access. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I've interviewed PJ Carlissimo about that, who's an assistant on that team. And PJ had uh, talked about, you know, the, the back and forth. I mean, there's always been the question as to whether Coach K uh, threw that game. I mean, I mean, not Coach K, uh, whether Chuck Daly threw that game. And that, that was the question. Shashevsky was part of that staff. And people had wondered whether, whether that was the case. I mean, I think it was guys like Rodney Rogers played in that game, Penny Hardaway. Um, but, yeah, they couldn't stay in front of Hurley. And the Dream Team documentary on NBA TV went over a lot of that stuff mm. uh, about whether there were questions. But, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's amazing that they didn't include that. Also, if you're going to put the full scope of what happened at the Olympics, that was the story. The only team ever to beat the Dream Team it was in a scrimmage and it was an amazing group of uh, college players at that time. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm glad there were no, you know, there was no half truths or misleading stuff like the 14 minute limit or the, you know, Michael supposedly going to Vegas, which never happened. Um, the one, you know, besides like random thoughts, like I had random thoughts. One was like Jordan's eyes bother me. Maybe he should get his liver checked. Like that's one thing that I think like, should, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. I had that. Sort of, there's like a yellow tint yes. to it. That, Mike, yeah. I know. Mike, Mike I know. you better get that checked out. Uh, or just little details. Like wasn't, wasn't Facebook, the Facebook company, the first two episodes. And then all of a sudden it's back to Facebook again, the sponsor of the show. But have you ever heard the LeBradford Smith story? Are you familiar with uh, this story? I'm, I'm sure I've heard the story, but I, I don't know if I remember that that was the player. So, so yeah, so this is they teased on it. Oh, did they tease it? I, I think I well, oh, you know who teased it? Scott Van Pelt teased it after in, the, in, a, in like a post show wrap up. He, oh, he okay. didn't say the story. He said, just wait till they get to the Bradford Smith. Well, story. it figures he would know because he's a D.C. guy. So it's. You know, and this falls under the category of stuff I'd like to have, you know, I'd like for them to have acknowledged for at least 20 seconds. Like my uh, my thing from the first game of his career where Jeff Ruland, you know, he, he got upended by Jeff Ruland. His career could have been over his very first game. So this yeah. is his, so this is the Bulls' third championship season. So this is late in the 92-93 season. This is March of 93. The Bulls are going for the three-peat, which was covered, I guess, in this last episode, that season. So we're probably not going to get the LeBradford Smith story. But um, this is March of 93. So the Bulls are kind of cruising into the postseason, and the Bullets just suck like they always did. And they had drafted LeBradford Smith a couple years earlier in the first round out of Louisville. And LeBradford Smith was just a marginal player, but they had the Bulls and the Bullets a, a home and home back to back in Chicago and DC in March. And this is I actually looked up the box scores just to verify all the all the details because right. I saw the story. So March nineteenth of nineteen ninety three is the first game in Chicago. March twentieth was the second game. So you can look up the box scores at basketball reference. So on March nineteenth, the Bulls, it's games in Chicago, the Bulls end up winning the game by five points. But LeBradford Smith of the Bullets goes off and he's he scores thirty seven points 
on 15 of 20 shooting, and he was 7 for 7 from the line. And, like, the first thing I was like, did LeBradford Smith, like, this had to be LeBradford Smith's career high. So I went into his game log, and sure enough, like, the next most points LeBradford Smith ever scored in a basketball game in the NBA, at the NBA level was 22. Like, this was just some outlying, <laughs> An outlier. Yeah, complete outlier. I used to get Basketball Digest when I was a kid, and there was always a... Uh, yes. There was always a page, the game I'll never forget. And I imagine that LeBradford Smith, this would have been his. <laughs> so he scores 37. And this is the first night of a back-to-back against the Bulls. And uh, on, the way, <laughs> on the way off the court, LeBradford Smith says, goes up to Jordan and goes, hey, good game, Mike. <laughs> this is the worst possible thing he could have said. So Mike, and you could just imagine, Mike, that glare that he gives, probably was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so the next night... Uh, the next night, Jordan scores 30 in the first half on the Bradford. He ends up with like 47. But anyway, I would have loved to, for them to have, uh, you know, spent 30 seconds on stuff like that, where it's just like, these are the stories that need to be told. Like he had such, and that's the, that's the beauty of this document series more than anything to me is showing all the little things. Obviously, his Hall of Fame speech, you know, spelled this out beautifully. Oh, yeah. And maybe some would say even sort of without much class in that sort of venue. But um, the things that that he drew upon for motivation, you know, like he was just he had done everything already. It's like, how can I motivate myself? Oh, Barkley got MVP. I'm a crush him. Oh, Clyde Drexler's playing. Oh, watch this. LeBradford said good game to me. You know, <laughs> all those little yes, stories are phenomenal. Yes. That's the stuff that I, that's the stuff that made Jordan and his lore so incredible. And and those of us watching, that's why I think when we grew up watching Jordan and all he accomplished, I think that's sort of my question to the to the LeBron over Jordan folks is always going to be uh what more could Jordan have done? There's there's nothing more in his era. You you want to say that the competition wasn't the same, which I would disagree with a, a lot of that, but you know, the league was older back then. It's gotten a lot younger now and all those things. I just think that you look at what Jordan accomplished throughout his career and every time he set out to accomplish something or defeat someone, he did it. And he had to literally set up challenges to himself. And now we, we sort of go back and it's, again, him leaving the game. I almost think that was part of it. That it, Like for me, that's always been my theory on Jordan is that he was, I don't want to say bored because that that's almost too strong, but he what more could he have done? I mean, in fact, so he, he in fact, let me yeah. In fact, let yeah, me ask ahead. you this. Sorry to interrupt. If he doesn't go away for those two seasons, maybe it doesn't play out this way. Like I almost think he needed that time off to mentally recharge. Oh, yeah. yeah, because he he looked for those types of challenges. I mean, Don McLean, who some people might remember being UCLA's all time leading scorer and. He was the most improved player in the NBA. Don has told told me the great Jordan story about how he played in a pickup game with with Jordan and he like had a pretty good game. And so Jordan was like insistent that Don come back like the following week was like, you have to come back. And meanwhile, it's a pickup game over the summer, no, like a UCLA's famous pickup game yeah. comes back the next week. And like Jordan won't let Don touch the ball. Like he just won't let him have it. And Don is, as we've been going back and forth watching the last dance, Don's been saying like, People can now start to realize, and Don's the, the preeminent workout guy for all the NBA draft guys now. So he had Donovan Mitchell, Carl Anthony Towns, um, you know, you name it. He's had the, the elite players in the draft the last few years. And 
so there is nobody more familiar than like what 90s basketball was like in a bubble. Like, and then meanwhile, like what it's like now. And Adam, Adam, he was on that Bullets team with LeBradford Smith, by the way. There you go. Yeah. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rex Chapman and yeah. company. And and he and that's the thing. And Don and Don talks about it though, just about the level of toughness. And they go, he says all the time, what you don't understand is if Jordan wanted to have something, like that was it. And B.J. Armstrong alluded to that. He sort of referenced it when he gave his interview during the last dance last night. It was the same thing that that Jordan was kind of playing a different game than everyone else. And and I've always found that to be fascinating. I thought that and was you a know, great give quote. You that was a great quote. What did BJ was like? He just, he knew how to win. He figured out how to win. And yeah, once he, he figured out how to basketball. win. Yeah, that was great. It was incredible. And I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing and, and something that, that uh, is a nugget just for this podcast. But so when I worked at ESPN with the, with the NBA folks, I remember them coming out of meetings at one point and a bunch of the guys that worked on the NBA side started telling me, you will not believe what Scottie Pippen's been saying in meetings. Scottie's been saying that he was better than Michael Jordan. And Pippen's never going to say that on this documentary. <laughs> and by the way, there has there been another guy in NBA history that's been, forget it just during the time, getting the chance to play alongside Jordan and what that did for his legacy and getting him on the 50 greatest. But also now, how about post-career the fact that Scottie Pippen, his career has been treated. I mean, in the documentary, we just we're gonna let slide that J.A. Adonde at one point says, Oh yeah, Scotty was the number two player, all the best number two guy of all time, all time. in NBA history. Yeah. Like Kobe played with Shaq. Like Kareem and Oscar played together. What are we talking about that Scottie Pippen's the best number two of all time? Get unbelievable. But um, yeah, it's it's remarkable. Jordan's given a lot of people jobs and he's given a lot of people legacies and and stories like LeBradford Smith to tell their, their grandkids. Yeah, man. Well, we'll enjoy uh, segments uh, or episodes 7 through 10, I suppose. But I I, uh, I appreciate you hanging out again because I wanted to uh, get your thoughts. I know you uh, you had some special insights and stories as well. I mean, it's just it's fascinating. Here's the thing. Again, I'll just say it in, in conclusion. I don't want all the... You know the 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 little omissions that I've cited, or the or the criticism all along. It's not really criticisms. I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's probably. I mean, look, this thing has gotten so much hype during a pandemic that it wouldn't have otherwise probably if we were just in normal sports uh, schedule wise. So there's a little of that at play too. But it's still super enjoyable. And what a task. What a you know. This is whenever when else in life will we ever have this situation of anything where there's some secret footage somewhere that finally gets released? You know, decades after the fact. It's fascinating, man. The Michael Jordan's a Bruder film. It's amazing That's that we're right. we're finally seeing it. That's right. And, and and the Michael Jordan's a Bruder film is him with Scotty Burrell on a plane. <laughs> Talking about how Scotty Burrell's an alcoholic and Scott Burrell doesn't want his parents to find it. Yeah. That's Oh, that's the one thing you and I said about, sorry, I will conclude with this, the the womanizing, right? Like, because Jordan has final editorial say, like Jordan, I mean, after his career, we all heard lots of stories about Jordan and uh, Jordan will take your girl kind of stuff. We're not getting any of that in episode seven to 10, I doubt. <laughs> no, no, that's not coming. That's, that's not, coming. not coming. Adam, appreciate it, man. Uh, Rejecting the Screen is the name of the podcast you do with Noah Kozlov. Your latest guest is... Uh, we got Vin Baker coming Vin up Baker. on nice. Thursday. Yeah, so he's he was actually interesting. We talked some. Vin Baker was a star during the the late '90s when when Jordan was there. His career obviously took a turn, but Vin had a bunch of interesting things to say. Yeah, that was a very fascinating interview. Thursday, Vin Baker. 
All right, cool. Appreciate it, man. We'll uh, we'll check that out, and uh, we'll get you back on a numbers game probably next week. Talk uh, seven and eight, nine and ten after that. Sounds good, my man. Adam Stanko on the Beating the Book podcast, the exclusive uh, last segment of this pod. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 